0: Talk Radio. Welcome, my friends, to Vlog Talk Radio, Top the shelf for this Saturday, April the thirtieth, two thousand and eleven. What a glorious, gorgeous day it is! I'm actually going out to a, a, the Nashamley State Park to cover a story for a Civil War reenactment after the at the end of the uh, of, of our show this morning. But I want to thank you so much for being here with us today. It is truly a joy truly a joy. You just feel my heart up to have you here with us. For those who are tuning in for the first time, I want to introduce myself. I'm your host, Denise Turney, coming to you live from the city of brotherly love, and that is Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And as always, I thank you so much for your support. And please, please go out and get a copy of my latest book, Long Walk Up. It is a very inspirational, moving book that you will be so blessed to add to your book collection, and you can get a copy of Long Walk Up today by visiting www.chistell.com. It's also available in ebook format at Amazon and other online booksellers. Uh, and if you you can also get it at any bookstore. If you don't see it on the shelf, just ask the clerk for it. Tell them you want to get a copy of Long Walk Up by Denise Turney, and they can order it for you because it's carried by the largest book distributors. In the world. And now let us go meet our very special off the shelf guest. Our special guest today is a best selling author, a public speaker, and an educator. And she received her Bachelor of Science degree from Jarvis Christian College. She has taught at both the elementary and secondary school levels. And she is the author of the books Boaz Brown, Divas of Damascus Road. Breaking Bonds to Biscuits, an interesting title, <laughs> The Good Stuff, and Trouble in My Way. <laughs> and this phenomenal woman is the one and only Michelle Stimson. Please visit her online. This is, I tell people this is one of the benefits of having online radio as our listeners tune in to the shows each week. You can listen to the show. And go over to the person's website and, and learn more about them at the same time that you're listening to them respond to the questions that I ask. And she is online at com, and that is spelled Stimson. ncom com. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Michelle.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.
0: It's a blessing to have you here, and I'm excited and looking forward to the interviews. I'm sure each of our listeners are. I wanted to ask you, as I was doing the research for your interview, what would you say, Michelle, is your lifelong dream, to be a teacher or to be a writer, if you had to make a
1: choice? Oh, that's a tough one. I think I, I know I always wanted to be a teacher growing up, um, and I always wanted I always love to read And I always loved to write And I, I saw myself Writing one book I didn't see myself Writing all these books yeah. But I, I think First and foremost I'm a teacher The good thing about Writing Christian fiction Though is that I feel like I can Teach through writing So it kind of works out uh, To be the same thing uh, Okay
0: Okay And how long Did you teach? I know you taught At elementary And the, in the uh, At
1: the higher level As well Right Um altogether a total of six years in the classroom, and then I began consulting privately in 2006, and I still do that. So I'm still kind of, I still have my foot in the education world.
0: Okay, okay. What is the title of the first book you wrote, and how long, now you said you knew you wanted to write one book, but you didn't know you would end up writing several books. What's the title of the first book, and how long did it take you to to pen that book was that experience as easy or as difficult as you thought it would be? Uh,
1: the first book is a, is entitled Boaz Brown and it's about an interracial romance, an interracial Christian romance uh, of an African American woman who wants a Boaz, but when the Lord sends the right man, he's not the right color, <laughs> in her mm-hmm. point of view anyway. And so mm-hmm. that one took me actually only about three months to write, um, and, and that's I your first a publisher. That was my first one. That was my first
0: one. And it one. took you now, three it was, Wow. It, it
1: took forever to revise it. It took us almost a year and a half to get it to where it needed to be. And I thank God that my publisher was patient enough and my editor was patient enough, you know, to work with me through all of that. Um, mm-hmm. But that first one didn't take me very long at all. And I, I have to say also, just logistically, I wasn't working full time when I wrote that book. So that makes awesome. a huge difference in how quickly I can write a book, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, and so Mm -hmm. it took me it didn't take me very long for that one
0: why did you decide uh this is a question i wanted to ask you why did you decide to tackle an interracial relationship in your first book boaz brown
1: um actually it kind of came after 9-11 i was looking at pictures of people who were covered in gray ash and you couldn't tell what color they were and for me Growing up in the South and with my father, you know, he knows I say this about him, so I'm not talking behind his back, but my father is the black Archie Bunker, if you're Uh, familiar with that show, All in the Family. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. uh, And he
1: watched that show religiously, by the way. (laughs) But uh, growing up with him as my, 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 you know, the first man of my life, you know, I just got a lot of messages about, very clear messages about being African-American and what the disadvantages were and how you need to not trust white people and all these different things. And um, But as a Christian, that doesn't line up with the word. So, it was, it, you know, going through 9-11 and looking at people for the first time without knowing what color they were, I mean, that was honestly the first time I had ever looked at people without – because I couldn't tell what color they were. They were so completely covered in gray ash. And it just hit me that, wow, you know, this is how God sees us. He sees us as one-color believers. One color under the blood of Christ. So it was a, a very cathartic book for me to write.
0: Can you tell us, without giving uh, Boaz Brown away, uh, just just give our our listeners enough uh, to make them want to go out and and actually get the book and read it? What are what are some of the key, without getting giving away, maybe just one or two key conflicts that happen in this story? And if you could just tell us about one or two of the major characters who helped to move the story forward?
1: Well, I can tell you all about it. I will tell you this, though. It's out of print at the moment, so <laughs> no, they won't okay. be able to get it anytime soon. Uh, but just for the sake of conversation and addressing the issue itself, um, the main character, LaShondra, is a vice principal at a middle school, and mm. she faces a lot of um in her mind they're racial issues but honestly they're really more economic issues than racial issues but she always mm-hmm. thinks everything is about race because that's how her father raised her and and to mm-hmm. some degree it is i mean you you don't want to ignore uh statistics and you don't you know patterns that you see are not random there are things going on at the school you know her school is 25% african american and yet 60% of the referrals that she gets in her office are for african american students And when she walks into the advanced classes, she might see 10% of African Americans enrolled in those classes. So there are patterns that we definitely need to be aware of and addressing. But when it comes to personal decisions and and things like that, you know, we have to make sure that we're going with God's best for us and not just our preferences. Because, I mean, she didn't have it in mind to fall in love with a white man, but she also wouldn't have gone with a short man. Or a man with a gold tooth. You know, just what are what are all these preferences that we have that may be right. knocking us out of, the per, out of the perfect will of God for our lives?
0: Uh, wow, very interesting. What is Boaz like? What is Boaz, what is like? Boaz now, like? The main the character.
1: Oh, a, you mean uh, the, the, the hero? The, the
0: woman's a school teacher. Is she? Is she? How would you describe her? Besides saying she's a school teacher.
1: Um, I think she's a woman of God. She actually, you know, has a personal close relationship with God, gets up every morning and, and hits her prayer closet before she hits the world and and actually has a relationship with God. And when the Lord was leading her to go, just at least accept the invitation to dinner from this man, she really just kind of stopped talking to God about it because she really wow. wasn't trying to hear that. And and not only that, mm-hmm. but she was hiding it from everybody um, in her family because she really couldn't admit it to herself at little man. So,
0: and so, what what what's, what's Mr. Boaz like? What what is it about him that 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 attracts her?
1: He's a man of God. I mean, you know, a, a real man of God knows a woman of God when he sees her. And once once you get to opening your mouth, people of God know each other, and and know not just that you know scriptures and that you understand, you know, all of the Jesus died for you and all that, but that you are living it with integrity. That's a whole different level of Christianity, point blank. And people who are living there recognize that in other people. And that's the kind of man he is. Originally he was actually gonna be black and LaSandra was gonna face this interracial thing through her brother who was gonna bring home a white woman. But my publisher said, No, Michelle, that's not really um she's not facing this head on. She needs to face this head, head on. Let that guy she's falling in love with turn white. And so Stelson, the the main character the male character, was originally black, but I had to make him white in about a year. But what was funny about all that And what was eye-opening to me Was that the essence of who he was The man of God that he was Never changed Even though he changed from black to white So as an author it taught me You know what He's a man of God regardless of what color he is And if she can't get past him I know a lot of sisters who will Who will take that brother in in a minute He's not a brother in terms of his race But he's a brother in Christ And that ought to count for something so that yeah, was my it, first it, book,
0: six books ago. <laughs> it 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 in a relationship though. So there are more than one man a god, more than one woman a god. I would there has to be something else that was attracting her to him, or she could have been with maybe another thousand men. There are more than one man a god out here, more than one woman a god. There what there has to have been something that attracted her to him beside beyond that even. I would say well, I mean he's
1: good looking for one thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> he's a nice looking man. And he treats her well. He okay. just treats her well and he's patient with her and he's kind. And she actually was a tutor. She was tutoring at her at her church on Wednesday nights before main service and she mentioned to him that, you know, she didn't have anybody to really to help her with the kids and sometimes the kids would get frustrated because they didn't have, you know, anybody to help them. And he just came and helped. And it's like, Wow, I didn't even ask you to do that and you did that. And you know you can say to people, "Girl, I need help," and they said, "Well, I'll pray for you to get somebody." But the fact that he came, <laughs> right, and was willing to sacrifice his time to help her—that's a help me. That's what you're looking for in a mate of any race. Okay. So okay. things like that, you know, that's what that's what really opened her eyes to the fact that, yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a handful of of, of you know Christians. There's probably 150 Christians for every you know one person. Whoever you whoever you I mean there's not really just the one for anybody whoever you make it work with that's who the one is going to be so okay. but there's there's one kind of person and he fell into that category and plus you know it it was it was god's timing it was the right time it was the right place they were both ready and they were both looking for you know that part of their of their lives to be fulfilled
0: all right why do why do you think Michelle uh after all these years and certainly there's a lot of history and there's still a lot of work left to be done um, but why do you think the church remains, even more than schools, I would say, one of the most, if not the most, segregated places in the United States?
1: Well, I think some of it is just worship styles. period. I mean, a lot of us are, I grew up Kojic, and so um, they're expressive, you know, Kojic people are very expressive in the way that we, you know, uh, worship and the way that we praise. And then some people are comfortable with that. Some people are not comfortable with that. So that's that's one part of it, I think. Um, but I think the other part is a lot of people flat don't feel like black Christians and white Christians are the same. One of the conversations that LaShondra and Stelson had in the book uh, was that she really didn't realize that there were really, really for real white Christians because she said, if you all were so Christian, y'all would not have let slavery go on the way that it did. And you know, they just kinda of had these really deep conversations about the history of the whole thing. But I think you're right. I think it's sad that America is so sad that that in a country that's supposed to be a Christian country for the most part and in a in a in a arena like church where the love of God is supposed to spread all across, I think it is sad that at eleven o'clock Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America, period. I think mm-hmm. it's very ironic and sad and it's it's a very clever device of, of the enemy because what would happen if we all got to better imagine that how much more could be accomplished
0: mhm mhm yeah, and and that really is up to each of us cuz we have the, we do have the have been given that the lord gave it to us the authority we don't have to give in to any temptations or whatever so it's not a, a I would say don't personally not to blame it on anything outside of us That's up to Mm -hmm. us to do that. You know, maybe it's just somebody going to a different church one Sunday until it does begin to change. I think we go where we feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. We go where our family's gone. We Mm -hmm. go where we feel comfortable. One thing that continues to surface in um, stories that off-the-shelf guests are past painful events that Mm -hmm. major characters are now having to deal with. Maybe they've spent years not having to deal with some past hurt, something that really, really hurt them, whether they were a child or in their early adulthood. And now it is, a time has come when they no longer can run away from it. And you tackle the past in The Divas of Damascus Road. And I wanted to ask you, what is it that each of these four women, Michelle, are running from?
1: Well, Diane is running from a very very painful experience. She uh, watched her sister die when she was a young girl. And Mm. she actually was... um, in charge of her sister that day, she should not have been because really her mother was being neglectful. She was out buying drugs and stuff, and Diane had always taken care of her baby sister, but this particular day she didn't realize how sick her sister was, and her sister died in her care, um, and mm. so she's running away from that, which of course is tough for anybody to run away from. I held my I got that experience from my wow. own past. my brother. My brother passed away when I was in third grade, and I I just remembered the feeling you know, what it was like when everybody was scrambling through the house and the ambulance and the neighbors and the crying and the grandparents and just how wild that was. Um oh. In my eyes as an 8-year-old, I was like, wow, this is like the most amazing thing ever. Um, And so I had a little bit of that. What was funny with all these characters is originally there was only going to be two, and then they had so many issues that I had to make them into four. And then I realized I was all four of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh my first goodness. Night, I, I was like, I'm these oh my people. <laughs> first wow. I was like, what's wrong with these people? Then I was like, wait a minute, that's me. Um, <laughs> the second character is Yolanda, who's a control freak. And she has issues with um, just being, you know, having that independence of hers, you know, get in the way of her having relationships with men. Or the, she's really just looking for one, actually. Um, the third main character is Regina, and she... She's just kind of a big whiny person, and she has struggled with her weight for years, and nobody actually knew it because she was polemic. And then um, one of the other main characters is the mother of two of the young ladies, and she just has a lot of deep, dark secrets that she hasn't uh, shared with anybody, just in the interest of keeping her family intact, in the interest of letting the past stay in the past, and, and which is what she feels is the best thing to do. Um, she deals with she, but she is going to be exposed in the book. But you have to read all that to know all that. So that's that's oh my those goodness. are the four issues. Wow, and that's that's
0: pretty major, particularly the the first one you talk. How does the the, the woman who was taking care of her sister mm-hmm. uh, when she was young and her sister passed away? Um, mm-hmm. How's her relationship with her mother?
1: Well. Um it was it was never good. Her mother actually, um, you know, was on drugs and has been on drugs and, and just kind of been out there, you know, for all this time. So it's been hard for her because she wants a relationship with her mother, but that if she has any type of relationship with her mother, that's going to be very toxic. And it's like, you know, at some point you have to say, I love her, but I have to move on. Unfortunately... The situations that she has encountered and and the feelings that she has against her mother and just the rejection has led her into the arms of many a man um, that she knows you know they're not good for her but she, she would just rather have somebody than nobody. So,
0: wow. What? Why, Michelle? Do you think? And I, it, it, we had another author who was on about two weeks ago, and our last author as well, Tia McCullough. Who mm-hmm. had a character who dealt with something that happened to them in the past that for years they just went, didn't have to deal with it as I was saying earlier, and then there mm-hmm. comes this time when you you simply have to deal with this issue or you're not going to right. move forward. Exactly. Why do you think that? Why do you think, Michelle, that we? Why do you think after we watch other people's lives, and this amazes me, whether it's a, mm-hmm. an, an addiction, whether it's a weight issue, issues with food. We see what happens to other people. We see it on television. We hear it about it on the radio. We mm-hmm. see it on the Internet, magazines, newspapers. We see it in our neighbors, people we go to church with. We see what happens mm-hmm. when you make certain choices and you keep making them. And yet we still do it ourselves. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just it's the, the why, why do you think? We try to outrun our past <laughs> when we've seen so many people never be able to do it. Why would it's give us just the an enemy and
1: just invincibility, just this whole idea that, you know, well, that happened to me, but it probably won't happen to me. And that's just the enemy talking to us and telling us, oh, there's something special about you. That won't happen. That's just like when I watch Jenny Craig commercials and people come on, they've lost 50 pounds, and at the bottom it says, these results are not typical. I need you to understand that. But still, everybody just goes out. And it's like, you know, it's not about Jenny Craig. It really is about, you know, core inside-out kinds of work. So, You know, I think we all like to think we're special and, you know, this wouldn't happen to us. But that's just a a clever disguise of the enemy. I think at the bottom line, you know, we're special because God chose us, but nobody is more special than anybody else, which kind of makes nobody special at all. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Correct. Correct. Yeah.
0: Do you, you in the Divas of Damascus Road, and I love that title, do you deal with the the really I mean the hard challenges? I can only imagine that a child faces when their mother or father is either mentally ill or addicted to drugs. And I also wanted to ask you, this just popped in my head: is the father also in the in the girl's life? The young girl who sees her, who's caring for her sister when she passes away.
1: No, actually, her father um, didn't really even know she was alive, so he was never there. And that's hmm. something that she'll find out later. But she, no, he was never there. He never even knew to be there. Um, you know, this is all back before we had DNA, so <laughs> before we could wow. test the DNA. So, you know, you could say anybody was a daddy back in the day. Um, and, and you know, just have to be, people just have to take the word almost about it. But uh, in terms of the mental illness issue, that was one thing I wanted to address in the book because uh, Diane's mother. You know, this was her daughter, the one who died. And she already Mm -hmm. was on drugs, so she was already kind of teetering in terms of where she was mentally. But when that happened, that took her over the edge. And her mental illness just kind of, the mental illness combined with the drug use, combined with the depression of it all, and she had to be prosecuted for child neglect. I mean, just all of that together, it just broke her Mm -hmm. mind. It broke her mind. And at you know then that's when the mental illness kind of became a part of it, and I wanted to address it in this book because I know, it's particular, in the African American community, there's just not a whole lot that we do. We might say, "Well, girl, he's all for stay away from cousins, sons, but girl, he's crazy," but there's not really anything that's ever done about it, and and I think that's a sad thing in our community. Um, and I shouldn't say it's just our community. I imagine it happens in a lot of different communities as well. But that's a tough thing. Uh, and, and when you're on the outside looking in or when you know you have a relative who is not well, in particular, I had a person in mind in my own family who uh, needed some mental help. But that person had the kind of job where if it if if it was even suspected that this person had any type of mental instability, they would they would lose their job. Now, I personally felt like, well, so be it, because probably – we don't need this kind of person in a job, in that kind of job, if they are mentally ill. I just want mm-hmm. this person to see if they see if anything can be done to address the issue. But just the, the threat of, of of anybody finding out was enough for this person to decide not to go for a long, long time until the mental instability caught up and that person lost their job. Um, and it, I, I wish that. That I had said something sooner, and I wish that I had intervened sooner, but I just didn't know how to do it. And that's kind of where they are in that family; they know that that Diane's mother, you know, is is not stable. But you know, you can only check somebody in for seventy two hours against their will, against their will, and they can walk out.
0: So, and I think a lot of that goes back to the past uh, through our ancestors. I know during slavery, uh, go, you know, going to a doctor was like, are you kidding? You weren't allowed to do that. So you learn to just keep going irregardless of the circumstances. And after hundreds of years of that, I can Mm -hmm. understand. I truly understand. After hundreds of years of, no, you don't get to go to a doctor. I don't care if you're having a heart attack.
1: keep going until you drop
0: dead. I completely understand where that comes from, that you just keep going. You just keep going. So we've we've been generations removed from that, uh, but... It, it may take a little bit longer because it was hundreds of years that we went with that. So it may exactly. take it may take a little bit longer to to come completely out. But I think it's good that you and other authors and more people are beginning to, you know, put with respectfully uh, right. have characters deal with these challenges, so that it it, it creates more and more awareness around it. I, I know you said Diane's relationship with her mother is strained. Her father doesn't even know he is her father. What are, what are her relationships like with the other women in her family and does she does she ever come to enjoy uh, an enriching relationship with her mother?
1: Now, I actually love a good ending. <laughs> so a okay. happy ending. So okay. there will be some happiness, but I can't tell you that without giving it away. Okay. So okay. I can't tell you the answer to, to that second question, but your first one was, what did you ask me about something about her father? You what are what, what,
0: what, what the relations, her, Diane's relationships like with the other women in her family?
1: Oh, well, it, originally, you know, growing up they were pretty good, but as she became an adult and as she um, kind of got distanced, because she went away to college and that kind of thing, um, And one of the reasons that Diane was able to go to college is because she, she, even though her aunt took care of her after her mother kind of went off, she was still a ward of the state, and so her college was paid for. So, you know, she was kind of in an advantageous position in terms of scholarships, and she was a very smart girl always anyway. So she kind of went off and kind of got into herself and really – if Diane isn't careful, and if the Lord hadn't intervened, she probably would have. She kind of saw herself turning into her mom. It's like I don't want to be like that, but wow, am I how to be how, like how that because my mom is like that, you know?
0: How how was that? So she's going to college. She mm-hmm. sounds like she's on the right track. How is she starting mm-hmm. to see herself becoming like her mother?
1: Well, you know, the enemy gets to talking to you and starts saying stuff like, "You're going to be just like your mom. You're going to turn out just like that." Your dad didn't even love you. I mean, all her life, these are just little inklings of thoughts that she's had in her mind that that her aunt in her presence would repel and would love on her and love those thoughts away. But when she goes away to college, there's nobody there to do that. Nobody's there to do that. And so those, those little thoughts kind of start eating on her at some point. And so, you know, when you're away from home at college, all, you know, all kind of stuff happens to people when they go off to college. So with Diane, it's kind of a mental thing. These little thoughts and and, and little naggings that she's had in the back of her mind—they're now going unchallenged, and she kind of starts to. Even though she has it together on the outside, she she really does, and she isn't going to end up being like her mom. But but she doesn't know that. She doesn't know that wow. because the enemy's talking to her, and he will do that to anybody who'll give him an ear. Anybody.
0: I I, I like how you said. Uh, she's having thoughts come up in her head That go unchallenged. Yeah. So before that's exactly how which it is, is Yeah, which is good for When we do communicate with each other And you don't hide things Because uh, mm-hmm. if you hide it It's just going to grow and strengthen And then you're going to start to believe it And then exactly. your own energy is going to make it stronger Your mm-hmm. own energy is going to make it stronger Your own belief in it is going to make it stronger And that's something exactly. outside of you so okay. it is important to talk to people about things so they can say to you and ask you questions and make you realize that doesn't make sense so you can right. let it go uh, exactly. rather than start feeding on it. Um, mm-hmm. What what will readers learn about themselves? What will readers learn about themselves if they read The Divas of Damascus Road? What will they come away not only knowing about the characters in the story but learning something about themselves?
1: Well, my hope is that when readers read this book they'll see there's so many characters that they'll see themselves in one of the characters at least and, and see that, that that character was able to come whatever issue, whatever bondage they were in through the power of God and that's um that's what I want, you know, readers of any of my books to read to together, that this person was in a tough situation, um, but because she stopped fighting it and said, You know what, this is crazy, this is bigger than me, I cannot fix this. I mean I'm going to need me some help from on high, you know, but that was the turning point for her and for all the characters. And so that that's will how, how draw.
0: How do you Michelle? Now your first book was Boaz Brown it took you 3 months to write it, about a year and a half to get it ready for print and publication. How do you how do you create your characters and your plots? Do you do outlines? Do you do character sketches? How do you go about the business of creating your stories?
1: Well, actually, for the most part, I just kind of start writing. I usually know what the message of the book is before I start you know what I want the overall message to be, or actually what I should say what the lord would, would want the overall message to be because I really it it always amazes me that I even have something to write about, but once I get to writing. I know it sounds weird, but the characters start to take over, and they do stuff, and I just sit there and I write, and I'm like, I can't believe she did that. You know, I learn them (laughs) as I write them. And because of that, a lot of times when I'm writing um, and I'm introducing a main character, I won't necessarily say what she looks like or what she has on in, in that first draft because I don't know her well enough to dress her yet. And okay. I can't do that. You know, I kind of, as I write myself into her, then I, I'm getting to understand, okay, she she would wear that type of a dress, or, oh, my gosh, she would never wear that. But I I don't know that to begin with. So sometimes I just have to put a little asterisk and come back to it. And like I said, with Diane, with the characters in Divas of the Maskless Road, I didn't realize that they needed to be more than one character. Um, so I had to split them up into two and three. and You know, it just kind of evolved as, as I write it myself into the characters which is not necessarily
0: right. what most people do I don't think. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of now you write the way I do, but a lot of writers do outlines and character sketches and really flesh the character out. Uh they mm-hmm. they they'll they'll do like a pyramid. Who are their main characters, who are the minor characters, who the so who ha- who should have the most stage time? The major mm-hmm. characters w- will need the most dialogue. They'll need to be on, on the pages the longest. Minor characters less and then the other characters even less, less, less. Uh and then what point of view are you gonna speak out of? When you just sit down and write a story, which is what I do, it does tend to take longer to edit it because you are you are doing that what a lot of people do before they write, you're doing it on the right. back side. On the back side. So but either way the story the story gets written. Uh, trouble yeah. in my way. Trouble in my way um is a story that i think most parents can relate to in some way um mm-hmm. and I, I imagine that all parents did something or or behaved in some way that they don't <laughs> want their children to do they don't want their children to talk like they did they don't want their children and you know you hear your your your, your parents when you when you're young they say you know i hope that you grow up and have a child just like you <laughs> it's almost like that's, your, that's yes. your greatest punishment. That's your greatest I punishment. Know. I hope you're going have a child just like you. Could, could could it be that parents want their children, you know, like they want them to pay attention in school and earn better grades than they did, be more physically right. fit, choose better relationships, don't be like me, and in Trouble in My Way, what is it that Karis Reed's mother wants her to do differently than she did?
1: Well, number one, uh, Karis is sixteen. Karis's mother is thirty two, so that means her mother was sixteen when she had her. And so mm-hmm. now that Karis has reached that particular age, her mother really is paranoid. Uh even though she's a woman of God and she, you know, ministers to young ladies and of course she's talked to Karis a million times about what to do and what not to do when you're out with a young man and that kind of thing. But it really, um it's really grating on her that, you know, she's at that age now. And um she just doesn't want to see Karis make those same mistakes.
0: Mm. And I can. And so I'm. I'm sure Karis doesn't take that um, so well. So what are some of her her responses to her mother? And is her mother constantly? Is she like? Is this so constant that it's almost like badgering? To don't 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 wear that dress. Uh, those pants are too tight. That that blouse is not right for you. Make sure when you go out to blah, 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 every, every step she makes, her mother's just so afraid. Don't be me. Don't be me. Don't make the same mistake I made. Is it that bad? And if, so what what is Karis' reaction, her responses to her mother trying to really almost, her mother's trying to erase a mistake she made through her daughter. What, how does Karis respond to her mother doing this? Because most teenagers well, don't respond too well to that.
1: <laughs> no, she didn't respond well. But Car- on, in Karis' mother's defense, Karis um, has lied about a lot of stuff. And so it's kind of like, okay, is it Karis doing this stuff or is it because her mother's making her paranoid? I mean, it's like which came versus chicken or the egg with Karis. Um, and she's a sweet girl. She really she knows better. You know, than to do, and and Karis really was okay until the trouble started at the very beginning of the book. Karis keeps a diary, and she and the and she writes down everything that happens in life in the diary, and she and her mother doesn't read the diary except Karis left it out open on the bed because she was late <laughs> running, and so her mother read it, and that that's where the trouble really really started. Because I mean, Karis' mother was on her, but when she read some of the contents of the diary. Then she really got on her because she was like, this girl is about to cross the line. So when you give people evidence to, that you might be getting ready to do something, then of course they're going to hone in on you even more. I do think her mother was a little bit overbearing, but she had a little bit of a reason to be in some way. So it's it's kind of a, a catch-22 with the two of them. Um, but Karis knows so, better.
0: So it sounds like the the, the the background I read on the story, it sounds like Karis is attracted to what people would call the bad boy image Mm -hmm. was her mother when she was karis's age was she attracted to the same type of guy herself it's it's so odd how we tend to repeat without knowing (laughs) we don't even need to know that our parent or grandparent did something or somebody in the family we do it and then somebody says you know your grandfather did that or your, your your mother did that, and you're like, mm-hmm. Oh my God, I cannot believe I just repeated <laughs> something. It, it happens, and it, it doesn't just happen with biological how we inherit. No, it you know, diabetes or high blood pressure or whatever. We can we
1: re-
0: re- actually repeat somebody else's behavior, which is exactly. why it's so important to to live a good life, so our children don't can repeat the good things,
1: <laughs> right?
0: <laughs> Not keep right, repeating exactly. bad things. But it, it, does Karis fall for the bad boy image? And did her mother do the same thing?
1: Caris's um, father, she's very active in her father. Oh, he's very active in her life. She's over there, you know, every weekend, and he's not a bad guy at this point. Um, but no, I wouldn't say she was attracted to the bad. Boy. Her mother was attracted to the bad boys necessarily. Um, but Caris, the thing with Karis that she doesn't know yet is that she's already called to minister to people, but she just hasn't, you know, walked. She hasn't gotten to that season in her life where she's going to be doing that. And so just her willingness to reach out and help people and try to get people to get on the right path is is what's driving her to these bad boys because she really does want to help them and she really does pray with them after they have, you know, stolen feeling fans from the store. So that's just, you know, kind of where her nurturing heart is. But her mother is trying to get her to not use it, you know, in that way. I mean, and it's a tough it's a tough position to be in. It's one that I relate to well because I you know I'm like I like you said my my family kind of has a history of godly women marrying these rascals, and mm. so it's been kind of interesting to see you know how that has played out in my relationship with my husband and the relationships before, and then what's happening with you know with my own daughter who's 15 now. So you're right about the fact that you know there's this. There's, um, there are generational patterns and curses that that people encounter even when they may grow up in a different home. I know we adopted um, my brother out of the foster care system, um, but even though he grew up with us in our home and in our family, a lot of things that he does are like his birth family.
0: Yeah.
1: And he mm-hmm. did not grow up with them at all. hmm but it's something? interesting to see that. It, it's, some, yeah. it's something spiritual is what it is. It really, truly is. And it, it made a believer out of me that there are generational curses. Because if you didn't grow up in that house with that, with those surroundings and those influences, there's no reason for you to be acting out this way. Um, and I love my brother. He knows I do, and he knows I want him to get right. So <laughs> he'll
0: be <Yeah>. all right. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Uh, uh, um. What, what I want to ask you next is do you think parents should tell their children about mistakes they made so they don't repeat them, or would you say parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, et cetera, et cetera, should just keep our mistakes a secret? Uh, so, so it it, it it sort of protects our image. Our children think well of us. We think we've set a good example for them. Which would you recommend?
1: Which I think you, you should recommend? tell them when it's appropriate um, and in a way that is um, not just, well, listen, I want to tell you what I did, but listen, I want to tell you what I did, and here's the, the lesson that I learned. That's something that I've had to share with my own children. Um, I, when my husband and I married, I was four months pregnant with my son. And, mm-hmm. I mean, he, my son just never, my son, he just, he doesn't do the math on stuff like that. He just, you know, he's just not into, he would never look that kind of thing up, but I know my daughter would. And uh, okay. they were, she was about 12 or 13 or 14, and I sat down with them, and we were at, we were eating dinner, and I don't know why it just came over me at that point to tell them, but I did. And mm-hmm. my son was like, oh, okay. And my daughter was like, I knew it, I knew it. Point because she was about eleven or twelve at that point, and she just hadn't done the math. So it, within my case, mm-hmm. it, it, all you have to do is do the math and figure it out. And I knew it was just a matter mm-hmm. of time before she figured it out. And I didn't want her to find that out and then be like, "What a hypocrite you are," you know. Oh, so yeah. I told her myself, and th- but there are things mm-hmm. that I haven't told my kids and don't plan to tell my kids. Um, mm-hmm. But but where I feel like you know I don't want to be hypocritical about it, I will definitely let them know.
0: Okay. Love the title of your book, The Good Stuff. Thank
1: you. And at
0: your website you say that Sonia is tired of raising six-year-old twins. Mm-hmm. Did she marry and have children early? It's Did she plan to have twins? Did she plan to have children when she did, or was it something that happened and she was brave, grateful for it and then it became overwhelming?
1: Well, Sonia was married, and she and her husband, you know, you know, they just had a bait. They just, you know, decided they were going to have kids, I guess. And then they, you know, ended up having twins. So it wasn't anything that she was against. I don't think her husband was against it either. Um, but this is just kind of what happened. And, and in the middle of all of this, um, you know, having twins or having kids, period, makes you grow up fast. And you have a certain level of responsibility that you never have had before. And Sonia felt it, but she doesn't feel like her husband ever felt it because he still kind of does whatever he used to do. And she uh, she's beginning to resent the fact that he just doesn't seem like his life has changed, but hers has changed completely. Wow. Part of the problem is Sonia and the fact that she never would really let him do anything with the kids because she was always afraid that he was going to mess up. And so he just learned pretty early on, just leave the kids alone. This is not my territory, and so I'm just going to let Sonya handle this, you know. You know, a
0: lot of women mothers do that, and then I I I think do, do end up resenting it when the children are born. They want to do the most for the child, and then when the man says, okay, I'll take my cue, and he steps back. Then it's like, why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you doing more? Well, you yeah. seem like you wanted to run the show when I tried to do yeah. it before. you like, no, exactly. give me this, baby. No, I do this. Yeah. So to learn, you know, we have to learn not to do that so that years later yeah. we don't end up resenting it. We are, for our listeners here at Off the Shelf, speaking with Michelle Stinson. We're talking about her last book, and then I want to ask her some questions about writing in general and, and the book. Publishing industry and getting the word out about our different titles. We're talking about her her latest book or her 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 last book, and I want you to encourage you to go visit her online at www.michellestimson.com and that's m i c h e l l e s t I M P S O N dot com again. It's MichelleStimson dot com. She is a, a a teacher. She now consults as an educator, and she is the author of the books Boaz Brown, Divas of Damascus Road, Breaking Bonds to Biscuits, The Good Stuff, and Trouble in My Way.
1: Oh, let me and add a we now, that. We've got some more. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, we do. Yeah, <laughs> we, last go ahead and
0: tell us about them. Go ahead and tell I'm us about them. <laughs>
1: I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was like, wait a minute. I just, it just blurred out my mouth. I'm so sorry. You tell more us subjects. the titles to the... Last Temptation the came out in October, uh, excuse me, November of last year, and then my next book, Some, Someone to Watch Over Me, comes out in June. And then I have a nonfiction Some... book called um, Someone to Watch Over Me Comes Out in June. And then I have a nonfiction book coming out entitled Did I Marry the Wrong Guy?
0: Wow. <laughs> wow. And that's nonfiction
1: that one's oh my goodness!
0: yes you are busy writing <laughs> uh i am.
1: God is
0: just to, good. just just to talk a, a more about the good stuff are adrian and Sonia, are they lifelong friends are they, have they no, friends like they've been friends like forever
1: no they're not friends um they actually what happens with them is uh they both share the same housekeeper um who's an african american woman named Irma and she's in her late 60s, and Irma doesn't really clean because she has to. She just cleans because she loves to clean, and she never had a family, so she likes to pick up after people. Um, but when Adrian pretty much decides that she's uh, going to leave her husband and when Sonia decides that she's kicked her husband out, they both call Irma and say, I'm sorry, you know, I'm not in a position to continue to use your services. Um, and Irma, having, you know, when somebody cleans your house, they know what's going on in your house. And when Irma, you know, she's kind of seen the signs of the couple splitting apart, and she and her, she just decides, you know what, I don't want to see another couple go through this. And so she and some of her older friends, they get together and decide they're going to mentor these young ladies in the fine art of being a wife, which I think is a very lost art, particularly for my generation. So um, that's how that whole thing got started. That's how they got to know each other.
0: Okay, and then they have the marriage, like the group marriage counseling, counseling, uh, which I'm assuming that the women go to first. Do the men ever join that that marriage counseling group that Irma and her older friends um, help to create?
1: Well, the men have some, you know, they come to some get-togethers that they all have, but the thing that Irma and her friends are trying to get Sonia and Adrian to see is that it really doesn't matter what's going on with your husband, if you would humble yourself and if you would get right with God, then God can work that other thing out. It just takes one person to get right, and then you you can see how God will completely turn it around in ways that you never could have even imagined. Part of it is going to be that he's going to teach you how to not respond to everything your husband does. That's the hugest part of it probably. But the other part is going to be that you're going to see that you know, God. when people say God can change things, it's not a lie. He actually can. He can change people's hearts. He can change situations. He can put people in a situation where they have no choice except to do the right thing, and that's what he's good at. So that's what they're trying to get the ladies to see. Mm.
0: I have to tell you, one part of that that I, I had a struggle with was it almost, and this happens so often in society when it comes to children and to marriages, like the responsibility to do what you said is placed on the woman. Mm-hmm. Is it at any point where it's on the man to do that, and you just you 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 do it and watch your wife change, or is it yeah. again placed that on the, the that responsibility once again for the children, for the family, for the marriage? Mm-hmm. Let's mm-hmm. dump that on the woman.
1: The responsibility is on whoever knows better, the person who knows mm-hmm. better the person who knows God, whether it's a man or a woman, it doesn't matter. The person who can get to God is the one who's in a position to say, Lord, can you intervene in this? Because, see, God gave, you know, humans dominion on the earth. And if we don't invite him into the situation, he don't have a way in because he gave that power to us. So whoever will open the door and allow him to intervene and be God is and whoever has the sense to do that is the one who has the responsibility. Whoever's okay. got the sense, you know.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, before before we go on to talk about some other things in general to book the book publishing industry mm-hmm. and for our listeners who are writers themselves giving them tips on ways they can spread the word about their books and get published, find publishers and editors, I wanted to ask you just to tell us briefly about Someone to Watch Over Me, which will be out in, in just about two months. Could right. you give us a brief glimpse into Someone to Watch Over Me so our off-the-shelf listeners can look for the book and go out and get it?
1: Certainly, someone to watch over me is going to be a fun book. It's about a girl named Tori, a young lady named Tori who has it going on in houston she's uh got her own, she's a marketing um an online marketer for a company and um she's doing very well. She lives with her boyfriend, and she doesn't feel like, you know, she just she really hasn't done the religion thing in a while, so it doesn't really matter to her that, you know, all this stuff is going on in terms of her, you know, being with this guy that really doesn't care anything about her. Well, he cares, but, you know, in, in a non-committed type of a way. Um, and she suffers uh, from appendicitis, an acute attack of appendicitis, and ends up having to go to the hospital. And that just being in there and not having any flowers and not having any visitors Kind of made her think, okay, well, what am I doing with my life? Because nobody from her job came by there. And one of the things that she was told by her one of the uh, counselors who came in to talk with her was, you know what, you know, the day of your funeral, um, do you know what your coworkers are going to say after the funeral? And she said, what are they going to say? And the woman told her, as soon as your funeral's over, they're going to get in the car and they're going to say, what do y'all want to eat for lunch? And that's Ooh. exactly what they're going to say. <laughs> so so that made her think wow you know maybe my life doesn't revolve around this job and in in the midst of all that she ends up going back to a small town where she was uh, kind of spent some of time in her life with one of her great aunts and uh kind of reconnecting with god reconnecting with family and of course there's going to be a romance so that's what that one's all about
0: oh okay going back home and and something is is getting ready to blossom back back right, home? Right, right. It's Where pretty She, she thinks she's gone though. to this this city and it's really that it happens. Uh, you leave home and you think, man, I'm I'm leaving here. I'm getting out of here. Right, <laughs> and you right. Get away. And a couple of years later, your heart starts yearning to go back to the very place yeah. you couldn't wait to escape. How has exactly. your teaching experience, Michelle? Would you say? How does it impact your writing? I interviewed a woman a woman who was an English teacher. And her, her show was absolute, was a, one of our most popular shows, actually. But I, I always just imagine that being a teacher, and particularly she was an English teacher in New York, that it would really impact your writing. And she said it not, not more so she didn't think than for any other author who wasn't an English teacher. But I wanted to ask you, how would you say your teaching experience, if it does at all, impacts your writing?
1: Well, one of the things that has been really good about this, having been a teacher before my uh, book came out, because I, by the time my book came out, I wasn't in the classroom anymore. I was doing consulting full-time. And one of the things that's going on here in my state in Texas is a huge push toward, you know, students being able to write. At that time, it was writing creatively. And so getting into that whole field um, and reading books and researching and, and preparing to present things to teachers, caused me to change my writing in many ways so I I think it's just it's been a win-win situation altogether. and of course writing fiction uh, and being a published author lends credence to you know the things that I say when I go out when I'm consulting with people about writing so it kind of all works together
0: do you, Then this is what I would imagine and this is what I imagine with the other guest who was a New -hmm. New York City English teacher Uh, I I just could imagine that and you said you it took you 3 months to write Boys Brown that you would be editing yourself. Every sentence you'd be like, "Okay, no, 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 no I that you subject verb agreement <laughs> just that." Do you, so you it sounds like you don't do that.
1: You I just not I really don't. I just flat write the whole thing and and I I I mean, thankfully I have a pretty good grasp of the you know the the grammar and the uh, semantics and all that kind of stuff, but that's really not my strong point. Um I'm more of the, the literature and, and character analysis type of an English teacher than I am a stickler for the rules of grammar. And um, and and that's one thing that it's been funny. I have in my critique group, there is an English teacher in my group, and she, you know, she marks me up for everything. And she's like, Michelle, don't you you know about dangling participles? What are you doing? And I'm like, but that's the character. That's her voice. You can't edit her voice out of there. So it's it's been interesting to 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 see that that parallel but um it it I just write. I really do just write. Because if you do all that for me, when I stop and do all that editing and going back and looking
0: right I mean
1: you can rewrite your first chapter twenty times and you could have been done with it yes. in the time it takes you to do that. So yeah, I think yeah, some people I, are just using that as a procrastination tool, quite honestly.
0: Uh yeah I know and I and just, just to write it and then go back to edit
1: right because uh, when I first it's started right.
0: writing I used to edit as I wrote and it was it it, it just feels painful because you feel like I'm never gonna get through this because you, you won't. can always find something <laughs> in your writing that you want to change I I I don't care how good you are you you can mm-hmm. what advice as we have, as we come down to the last six minutes of the show what advice would you give to off the shelf listeners who are trying to do what you have already done. And they may have been years, Michelle, wanting to do this. What advice would you give to them, our listeners who are trying to land a book publisher?
1: Well, let me say to the first two-thirds of the people who have been trying to do this for years, the first thing you got to do is finish the book. I come across mm-hmm. so many people who say, you know, the Lord has called me to write this book. He's told me to write this book. And I, and I see them the next year and I say, is the book? Well, no, I'm not finished with it. You know, you have to, first of all, you got to write it. You don't even have to like it. You just have to write it. Get the first draft finished. If you would do that, then you can go back and fix it. Toni Morrison says the best part of writing is rewriting. But you don't have anything to rewrite if you haven't even written it. So you right. write the thing. You don't even have to like it. I fall out of love with everything I write about two-thirds of the way through, and I go, this is stupid. Nobody's going to like this. And What was I thinking? <laughs> I really do that with everything I have written. I fall out of oh, love goodness. with it, and I actually start hating it at some point that's no clue to stop writing it. You just have to write through that. Um, mm-hmm. Once you're done with it, you know, get a professional editor to look at it. If you know that grammar is not your strong point, have somebody who's well-read read it. Um, and, and, you you know, you, I would say compensate that person in some way because, you know, people's time is valuable. Um, mm-hmm. But after that, then, you know, you submit it to the publishers that are, you know, that are looking for your kind of work. If you find after so many years that you know people who don't even know you who have read it actually thought it was a good book, um, don't be afraid to self-publish the book. In addition to mm-hmm. writing fiction, Christian fiction, I have self-published about forty short stories that I've written for teachers with you know multiple choice questions and teaching guides and that kind of thing. I put that on a, a separate website it's called wegotaread.com. dot com, and let okay. me tell you that is actually a viable source of gratification, number one, but also income. I mean, it rivals the money that I make from the major publishers. So I don't think that, I mean, there's certainly a a great deal of um, validity that comes from being published by a major publisher, but I think we're at a point now in the industry where authors have to make a decision, you know, do I want to be quote-unquote published or do I want to make money? So that's something mm. to think about. I
0: don't think the two are synonymous. Very good advice you just gave, and we got to read. Is that G O T T A?
1: Yes, W E G O T T A READ dot com. We got
0: to read. We got to read dot com. We got to read dot com. There's more of Michelle Stimson's work there. I cannot believe we only have three minutes left. I had so many other questions I want to ask you, <laughs> but to our to our to our listeners, as many people there's that yearning to publish a book and they may think that, you know, they get the rejection letters. Uh, gratefully today, the book publishing industry has changed tremendously since I started publishing, and then if you go back even before I did, even more so. Years ago, if if a major publisher didn't publish your book, you most people generally went through a vanity house where you paid goo gobs of money to have somebody publish your book, and it still went nowhere, and then you have right. to market it and sell it yourself. But now with the self-publishing and even the e-books, mm-hmm. I mean, your overhead with the e-book is almost zilch. Right. You don't have to pay shipping, and, and people are buying and reading e-books. I mean, they're really right. buying them uh, in the millions. Right. So it's, a, it's another way to make money. So as we continue to move forward, more opportunities, you just have to have a belief that you can do it. And sit down and write that story because most publishers, if you're a new writer and you query them and you say, they say, well, where's the manuscript? And you only have a few chapters done. They want the whole manuscript for, generally right. for a new writer. So write the book. And even if a, a publisher doesn't accept it, you have other options and more options right. today than you would have had in the past. There is no reason that if you really believe you should publish a book that you don't do it. Because with an e book, the overhead expense is almost non existent. So right. you, I think you your can, biggest. You
1: mm-hmm. Go ahead, I'm sorry.
0: No, no, I was finished.
1: I was just going to say your biggest expense is going to be your marketing and your advertising, which really doesn't necessarily have yes. to be that big. But no matter what you write, I don't care if you publish it yourself, I don't care if a publisher publishes it. Writing the book is half the battle. you got to promote, promote, mm-hmm. promote. It doesn't matter. I mean, unless you unless I mean, this is not a if you build it they will come situation. And I think a lot of right. us, as writers and as artists, we don't like to be in the public eye because we like to think of ourselves as artists. But we're going to have to get out of that if we plan on writing, if we plan on you know looking at this as a career option.
0: I, I got you, Michelle. You 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 that is so so true. Before we close, very very quickly, uh, would tell us about some social networks. Where are some places that off the shelf listeners can find you online, Michelle?
1: I'm on Facebook, fans of Michelle Stimson, or just look up Michelle Simpson. I have a Twitter. I also tweet, so Michelle Simpson there, and check me out at uh, womengrowinginchrist.com dot com is my blog. So that's all me.
0: Okay, and we got a read dot com and Michelle. Stimson.com please yes, and her ma'am. her new book Someone to Watch Over Me is out in June and her latest yes. Last Temptation is out now and she has yes. a nonfiction book coming out so please look for that we want to thank Michelle Stimson for being with us here on this Saturday morning we come down to home last Saturday actually in April 2001 <laughs> and she is our, our, our special guest on the last Saturday in April and so we want to thank her for being with us we want to thank each of you our listeners here at Off the Shelf and to our loyal listeners. I absolutely appreciate love and adore you and as I always tell you, remember you are so incredibly valued, so truly blessed and go out and create a marvelous, marvelous day for yourself. Michelle, I wish you the best with your, your you. latest The uh, you uh, Last Temptation and someone to watch over me and with your your, your nonfiction book. So much you. success to you and to our listeners. Michelle, I'll shoot you an email and goodbye for now, everybody bye